All right, cool. We're going to get into First uh, Timothy chapter three today. We're going through all of First Timothy. We'll likely go through Second Timothy as well. It's just natural that we do that. Uh, Jeremy did an awesome job. He's not here today, but I appreciate him teaching on First Timothy chapter two. If you think of it, go up and thank him for teaching as well. Um, you know, when I ask people to fill in in advance for me to speak and to teach, I usually do so three or four weeks out in advance to give them enough time to study and to prepare on what to teach. It takes about that long to be a good steward of, of teaching the Word of God and to, and to research and, and to bring a word and a teaching up here. Um, in addition to that, there's nerves and anxiety involved with that. So um, just, just be aware of that. Pray for people that are up here and teaching. But uh, one thing I learned from Jeremy last week is that this thing keeps popping. I'm sorry, it keeps helping. One thing I learned last week from Jeremy's teaching is that God is a God of order, right? And just like he set out the temple worship system, it had a very orderly uh, process in it. And, and, you know, we are to operate within the gifts of the spirit within a certain order. And Paul says, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 14, do things in an orderly manner. And uh, sometimes we, we, um, we do order to the neglect of allowing the spirit to move. And sometimes people move with the spirit. The spirit moves um, sometimes to the neglect or the exclusion of order. And um, bad things can happen in that, too. So it's important that we keep a balance of order, and, but also allowing God to move and speak through us in our gatherings. So for, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 is where we find ourselves today. 1 Timothy 3. Um, before we jump into reading, though, you guys remember where Timothy is living as he's receiving this letter and which city he is living? Does anyone recall? Ephesus, Mike nailed it, Ephesus. Ephesus is in Asia Minor. It's right here on the map. You can see its proximity to the big, big city of Athens and Corinth over here. And then Rome would be further to the west. Jerusalem is down here to the south, or should I say up here to the south and east. But yeah, Ephesus, if you recall your, your lesson on Ephesus, we gave that video. Um, it was a port town, but if you recall, eventually over time, this thing is glitching uh, out on me. I might have to switch microphones. Does someone want to grab me a different microphone? Do you mind, Anthony? Thank you. I think it's this right here. You remember the port uh, began to recede and the economy of Ephesus began to fail and that's why it became a ghost town. It was deserted and it was no longer a city today, a viable. But it was a, a, a bustling economic hub for Asia Minor at that time. Anthony, I think I'm good. I think if I just set it right here on the music stand, it's going to be okay. It was just when it was moving around, it was popping a lot. So I'll just leave it right here. Don't worry about it. Um, Ephesus, let's, let's pretend that you're a first century Ephesian, okay? You're a believer who has just come to the belief in the gospel of Yeshua of Nazareth, okay? You're living in the city of Ephesus. There is a small Jewish population there, and they have a synagogue. And the apostle Paul, or Rav Shaul, in what his Hebrew name would have been, has visited your city. He has shared the gospel. And he has created a, a ripple effect of believers and followers and disciples of Yeshua within this city. If you recall in the book of Acts, remember he was shouted down by the crowd. They said, great is Artemis the Ephesians of the Ephesians. Remember that? For like, I think it was a couple hours they were shouting him down as he was trying to debate them and share the gospel. And basically there was the idol makers, those who were making a profit off of idol worship, were concerned about the spread of the gospel within the city of Ephesians, uh, Ephesus. And a lot of times that's the case. People who are very adverse to truth and hearing truth, 
Usually there's something else behind the scenes that's going on, some other motivation that's preventing them from wanting to hear it and wanting others to hear the truth. And a lot of times it has to do with profit or money. But that was the case in Ephesus. As you walked into Ephesus, or let's say you took a boat into Ephesus and you docked at the port in Ephesus, you could immediately point out two things on the skyline and the horizon of this vast city, this very prominent city in Asia Minor. The first thing that would probably catch your eye is two kilometers outside the city proper was a large structure that was a temple to the goddess of Diana, and later would be called Artemis. And this temple was massive. The ruins and the foundation of it still stand today. It had 127 columns, what we call in Greek uh, stylus, styluses that would go around. They were very ornate. Many of them were actually overlaid in pure gold and then had uh, crowned with jewels as well. 127 of them. And they stood 60 feet tall. So that's like taller than the average telephone pole. Think of that. Massive, massive columns. It was a, it was a beautiful, ornate temple. And inside, all kinds of pagan idol worship would happen. And, um, you know, Diana was thought to be an Artemis, was thought to be a goddess of fertility um, and procreation. So you can only imagine the debaucherous things that would happen inside this temple. But this was the most prominent building on the skyline of Ephesus at the time. The other thing, the other structure that you would see as you approach this city you would live under the shadow of these large structures, so to speak, was this building right here. This is the Library of Celsus, the Library of Celsus. This library housed around, it's estimated 20,000 volumes or scrolls from all around the world that were accumulated and gathered and collected into this library. So as you approach this library, you were approaching it because you wanted to learn something about the known world or, or, or read the writings of some great philosopher, and maybe even um, religions from far, far away that you would never be able to visit. You would have their sacred texts in this library. It was, um, it was a central hub for all the known collected knowledge of the world. It was kind of like the internet, you could say. Some of it good, some of it bad. But this library was vast. As you approach the library, you could enter through three doors, three doors. But you'll notice there's four notable statues here on either side of each door, four notable. And this is what it looks like today. If you were to go there to the city, ancient city of Ephesus today, I think mom, you've been there, right? Yeah. Okay. I should have found a picture of you in there, but you see part, part of these statues still exist today as you walk through these three doors, but these massive columns, these pillars would have um, just been kind of intimidating and awe-inspiring as you, as you walked up. But these, these statues, if we take each of them and take a photo of them and put them all together into one photo, these statues still have the engravings beneath them. They represent different goddesses or the personification of different attributes. The first one would be, Sophie, do you know what that is? <laughs> Can you read your name in Greek? Sophia. And what is Sophia? Wisdom. Wisdom. The next one would be Arete. Arete is, um, it's like, uh, like, like sort of like truth um, or like, uh, like I'm trying to think of the best way to, I guess, I guess you could say it's like um, revelation. Revelation is sort of a way of thinking of it. The next one would have been enoia in Greek, which is intelligence 
And the next one, it's really hard to read, episteme. Episteme is um, knowledge. Episteme is knowledge. So you've got these four personifications of, and they were considered at the time to be the four pillars of what we would call aletheia. Aletheia in Greek means truth. So here, as you're walking into this massive library and this massive structure on a quest for knowledge and revelation of something that you otherwise wouldn't have, something of the known world, you would, you would walk past these four statues, wisdom and revelation and, and intelligence and then knowledge. And those were the pillars of this concept, this very Greek concept called aletheia, which is something that was concealed and is now revealed. It's, we can translate that to truth, truth. And a lot of modern English translators translate that word aletheia as truth. I'm gonna write it up here on the board actually for everyone to see the word aletheia because it's very important. I'll put it up here. Aletheia, we could spell it like that in, in English. Aletheia or truth. So I'll give you kind of a picture of what it was like in the city of Ephesus. It was economically prosperous. They were very de- religiously devout people, worshiping the god, uh, goddess Artemis, or Diana, as she was called in Greek. And they were also on a quest for knowledge. They, dis- they highly valued information, all right? Just to kind of set the context. Now, you're, you're there in Ephesus, and you're a believer in Messiah, and there, Timothy, the leader of the congregation, and one of the leaders of the congregation that you attend, gets a letter from the great rabbi Shaul, from, who was raised and taught and trained up and discipled by the great rabbi Gamliel. And so I want you guys to picture yourself sitting in your congregation as Timothy is reading his letter out loud to us. In looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, Here is a statement that you can trust. Anyone aspiring to be an episcopus, an episcopus, epi meaning um, over, and scopus meaning watching. Epi and scopus. You hear the word scope in there, like telescope, or a scope that you would put on a rifle? Episcopus. Now, what profession does that for a living? They watch over animals. A shepherd. A shepherd. That's basically the Greek equivalent of a shepherd, okay? Episcopus. This is also where there's a denomination in Christianity called Episcopalian. Ever heard of that? That's where they borrow this from, Episcopus. Episcopalian. But he says, anyone who's aspiring to be an Episcopus... Now, my translation says a congregational leader. Your translation might say overseer. Your translation may say bishop or elder. Anyone desiring to be an overseer, a watcher, a shepherd, is seeking a worthwhile work. Interesting. So what Paul is saying there is if if anyone is aspiring or feels called to be that, that's a good thing. Now, we have to balance this, however, with uh, James chapter 3, verse 1. What does James 3, 1 say? Not, every, not all of you should become teachers. Why? Because teachers will be judged more harshly than anyone else. So we have to balance that. Yeah, it's great to have a lot of people aspiring to be teachers and be overseers. But be careful. 
know the cost involved with that. He says, an episcopus, a congregational leader or an elder, number one, must be above reproach. So let's write these down under these qualifications. Be above reproach. What is, somebody talk, tell me, what does above reproach mean to you? Can't be influenced or Yeah. Literally what it means is you can't hang anything on him. Nothing can stick. Any accusation cannot stick. He must be above reproach. What's the next requirement? The husband of one wife. Husband of one wife. Husband of one wife. Good. What's the next one? Vigilant. What is it? Vigilant. Vigilant or temperate. What's the next one? Sober. Sober. Which is the opposite of drunk, right? Sober. What's the next one? Good behavior. Good behavior? What other translations do you have for good behavior? Orderly. Orderly. Self-controlled. Self-controlled. I like that. Self-control. What's the next one? Given to hospitality. He's hospitable. Hospitable. What's the next one? Yeah, apt, or we say able to teach. Able to teach. Interesting. What's the next one? Not given to wine. He's not a drunkard. He's not controlled by that, right? Doesn't mean that he maybe has a drink or something like that, but he is not given to being drunk. He's not controlled. He doesn't have an addiction to alcohol, right? What's the next one? No striker. Doesn't fight. Yeah, he's a man of peace. He does not fight. He does not fight. That could be physical or that could be verbal. He does not fight. Wow. What else? He doesn't get into quarrels. Not given to filthy lucre. Not given to what? Filthy lucre. Okay, who's got a different translation? Okay. Not greedy. Mm, that's important. That's important because we're going to see later in 1 Timothy chapter 5, I think it is, Paul says, don't, tread the, don't, don't muzzle the ox when it's treading its grain, saying that leaders and, and, and elders deserve, if they, if they so need it, they deserve payment from the congregation. But it's important that they not be greedy because they can take advantage of the congregation if they are. What else? Patient. Patient. Ooh. That's a good one. Anything else? Slow to anger. Slow to anger. Covetous. Slow to anger, not covetous. So what's another way of saying that? Contents, maybe? Yes. Managing his own household wealth. Manages his own household well. Having his children in subjection with all gravity. Yeah, children. Children behave, or we could say. Children believe, some translations say. Anything else? Can we get them all? Must not be a new believer. Thank you. Not a new convert. Not a new convert. Good. Anything else? Must be prideful. Not be prideful. So humble. I'm running out of room. Man, a lot of requirements, huh? Humble, what else? Good reputation. Good reputation. Among the outsiders, isn't it say? Mm-hmm. That's people that are not part of the congregation. 
All right, anything else? Then it goes into the deacons. Cool, we'll stop there. Wow, that's, that's a lot of requirements, right? There's four must-bes and five if you include gender. That's a lot. Eleven must-be-nots for the episcopus, the congregational elder. A lot of requirements there, isn't it? Now, is uh, Paul just pulling this out of thin air? Where is he getting this from? Is he just making all this up? No, he's getting this from Numbers chapter 11 when... Remember, Moses is told to appoint 70 elders of Israel, men who are, have a good reputation, a good standing within the community, men that are known to be wise men. And that's where he's drawing this from. So let's go on to the next verse here. I think we're on verse 8. Verse 8. Likewise, the diakonos, or we could say deacons in English. It's a diakonos. Diakonos. And that, that's translated into a servant. A servant. The servants must be of good character. So let's, you guys read off the list again here to me, and I'll write as fast as I can. Good character. What else? Must be reverence. Reverence. What does that mean? Reverence. God fearing. God fearing? Not double tongued. Not double tongued. Let's explain that. What does double tongue mean to you all? Yeah, he's truthful. Truthful. Consistent, right? What's another one for the... Not a wino. Not a wino, okay. So we can say sober. Sober. What's another one? Cannot be corrupted. Not greedy. There's different translations flying around, so it kind of sounds different sometimes. What's another one? Pure conscience. A pure conscience. Holding the faith with pure conscience. Okay. Uh, because I don't know how to spell conscience. Yeah, I do. I know how to spell conscience. <laughs> I think I do. I got it. All right, what's another one? Be married to one woman. Does it say married to one woman? No. I don't see it on there. It must be tested. Must be tested. Must be tested. What else? Blameless. Blameless. What else? One wife. Okay. Oh, it does say. For, not mine. It says the wives must be. Their wives must be brave and not slanderers. Okay. Sober and faithful. Okay. So likewise, the deacons must be of good character, people whose word can be trusted. They must not give themselves to excessive drinking or be greedy for dishonest gain. They must possess the formerly hidden. Uh, truth of the faith with a clean conscience and first let them be tested then if they prove themselves blameless let them be appointed as deacons similarly the wives must be a good character not gossipers but temperate faithful in everything and let the deacons each be faithful to his wife managing his children and household well for those who serve uh, well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and much boldness in the trust that comes through Yeshua the Messiah so here we have two uh, we could say um, classifications of leaders within the body of Messiah. We have episcopus and we have diakonos, where we get the word deacon from. Elders and deacons, we could say in English. So two different classifications. Why the two different classifications? Because we see throughout the book of Acts, Romans chapter 16, Philippians 1, we see these two types of leaders in the local assembly serving in, in, in different capacities with the local assembly. Elders 
And the, the overseers serve in spiritual things, non-physical components of the community, like teaching, teaching the word, counseling, marrying people, burying people, uh, uh, conflict management and resolution, those sorts of things, making authoritative and doctrinal decisions over questions that arise. That's the role of the elders, whereas the deacons have a different kind of role to play. They play a role in the more physical components of the community, like bookkeeping and collecting money, distributing money, food, building upkeep and maintenance, etc. All the physical components, security, those kinds of things of the congregation and the community. You get the difference there? And Paul is saying, this is how, Timothy, you are to govern yourselves. When you appoint these people to be leaders in the congregation in Ephesus, these are the requirements of these leaders. So it's not just anybody. Not because they're just very charismatic and because they can read Hebrew or read Greek or they, they have very you know, eloquent speech. No. Not because they have a lot of money or a lot of resources. No. They have to meet these requirements right here. Very stringent requirements, aren't they? And he, he, let's go on to verse 14. He says, I hope to visit you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I'm delayed, you may know how one should behave in the household of God, in the family of God, we can say. Or this is also the word oikos in Greek, which is like um, the economy of God. This, is, um, this word is used in Matthew 21, 13, if you, want to use, if you want to turn there real fast. It's important to understand what Paul is comparing us to when we gather. Matthew 21, 13. Matthew 21, 13. This same word is used. Yeshua says, it has been written that my oikos, my house, will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it into a den of robbers. What was he talking about there? The The temple and the money changers in the temple. Paul is saying that you need to know how to behave because you guys are like the temple of God. You're like living stones that comprise the dwelling place of God now. So it's important you know how to conduct yourselves. He says... You're the household of God, which is the ecclesia, or the assembly. Some translations will say community or church. You're the ecclesia of the living God. And here it is. You are the pillars and the supports of the aletheia. This right here. Aletheia, the truth. Paul is saying to believers, you guys in Ephesus, no matter how many people or how many times you walk through past those statues, which some say are the four pillars of truth, Aletheia, Paul is saying that that will crumble one day. That is all, that is not true. That is all false and will leave you hanging. He's saying, believers, listen, in Ephesus, you are the pillars of truth. You're not, you're not the foundation of truth. You're not the thing that makes truth true, but you're the thing that promotes it and holds it up. And that will not decay. That will not crumble like this has, right? And like that temple has. Yes. In saying all this, it's so interesting to me, I just saw this, that in 14, he goes on and says, and the blind and the lame came to me in the temple and he healed them, Mm -hmm. showing what was most important. Yeah, yeah. That people, yeah, that the blind lame be healed, yeah. 
Um, let's keep going. So he says, you are the pillar and the support of the truth, of the aletheia. Great beyond all question is the formerly hidden aletheia underlining our faith. Remember, aletheia in Greek thought is something that was hidden is now revealed. Something that was not evident is now evidence. And Paul is saying, you guys are the pillars of that. And here he goes on to say, he writes a little poem for the believers in Ephesus. He says, he was manifested physically and proved righteous spiritually. He was seen by angels. Remember at the resurrection, they rolled the stone away and proclaimed among the nations, trusted throughout the world and raised up and glory to heaven. What Paul is saying there is that Yeshua is the embodiment of Aletheia. He was concealed, but now revealed. And you guys are the pillars for that realization. Paul is making a very profound statement here to the believers in Ephesus through Timothy. So let's go to some lessons that I learned from Timothy. Hebrews 10.25 does this to really annoying command for us to follow. And introverts don't like it. (laughs) The writer of Hebrews says, don't neglect the meeting together. Or in Greek, it's episynagogin. Don't don't neglect synagoguing together. Okay? As some people do. But encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. That to me is kind of annoying. Because... When people get together, especially fallen human beings get together, there's never any conflict, right? No, we never disappoint one another. There's never any miscommunications. It's amazing, right? No, no, just kidding. There's always going to be disappointment. There's always going to be miscommunications. There's always going to be conflict between fallen human beings. I guarantee it. But sometimes people visit our congregation and they say, oh, I love it here, you're like family now. This and that, and they're just like, they have this like everything through rose colored glasses about DMF. And one of the first things I say is I take a little pin, I pop the bubble, I say, Yes, but we will let you down. Someone in this congregation, if it's not me, someone else will let you down. And they're always like, What? You know, wow. Yes, that's true. I, I hate for you to go in thinking that we're all like saints or something, because we're not. There will be fights, there will be miscommunications. There will be this messiness that comes along with people who are broken and fallen coming together under one roof and and doing extracurricular activities together like Rosh Kodesh, Sukkot, uh, you name it, all these other things. Their kids hanging out together. That's a big source of conflict sometimes within the assembly is kids having conflict with other kids and the parents have to take sides. There's conflict. It's an ongoing thing. It's like for the episcopus, for the elders, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. It really is. And sometimes we want to whack them a little bit harder than others. But it really is. But Paul says that's a good calling, right? And that, that's something that, they, that if they desire, that's good. But not all of them should do it. But when we gather, there's this question. So if you all just pulled in the parking lot today... And you just all kind of meandered in this room and you're like, oh, there's a bunch of chairs. Let's sit down. What do you do? There's the big overarching question. It's like, how then do we worship? 
We know that this is his day set apart for us. We know that we're supposed to get together. But then what does that look like? And that's a big question that we have to answer sometimes. And then when we get together, okay, eventually we're going to get hungry and let's eat and let's start talking together. Ah, and there's where it starts to go off the tracks when broken human beings start talking to one another, right? There's inevitably conflict, right? Or let's, hey, let's have that family over for a cookout and maybe their friends will be friends with our kids. Their kids will be friends with our kids. Uh-oh, there's more room for conflict, right? But it's like we need in this, you know, I don't know how many people are in this room, 60 to 80 people. We need governance, don't we? We eventually need someone who will come in and say, hey, cut that out. That's unhealthy behavior. Hey, don't do that in our worship service. When we worship, this is what we will do. That song is not a worship song. Let's not play that. <laughs> don't wear that, please. You need someone who will step in and say, hey, this is, but then, hey, let's do this, guys. We call that, in, that individual who is an influencer, we call them a leader. We call them a leader or a shepherd, right? And as a shepherd of the flock of Messiah, we have one job to do, one job, to keep the sheep alive, to keep the sheep fed and alive. You know, you need to eat to survive. So part of, part of keeping them alive is bringing them to places where there are green pastures to eat. And the word of God is the food that I'm trying to feed you. And protect the sheep. Keep them alive. Why? I want to hear from you guys. Why does the shepherd, why is the shepherd tasked with keeping the sheep alive? Keep the wolves out. Keep the wolves out, but why? You've got a bunch of like animals that could not fend for themselves otherwise. Why do we strive to keep them alive? Yeah, Brian? Prepare them for sacrifice. To prepare them for a sacrifice. And the sheep are all like, wait a second, who's the sacrifice? (laughs) The job of a shepherd of the flock in a congregation like this is to keep the sheep alive and, and prepared to be a living sacrifice on an altar. What that looks like, I don't know. But I'm just told to keep you alive. Right? Go, go, go. All right, it's my turn now. To get you prepared and and build your faith to be so strong that if someone says it's this and you die or you neglect it and you live, you would choose the former and not the latter. That's my job in in a nutshell is to get you to be able to do that. Now, there's a lot of ways and a lot of time that takes right to build that up. But when we get together, bad things happen. When we get together, great things happen. But we need governance. Some lessons I took away from that is the local ecclesia should be governed by servant leaders who are each held accountable to a set of qualifications. The leaders are broken into these two categories, the deacons and the elders, the deacons and the elders. You didn't hear anything in Second Timothy chapter, or I'm sorry, First Timothy chapter three, where Paul says, find a a man who is seminary trained with a master's in divinity and point him to, appoint him to be the pastor and the supreme leader of your thousand-member church, and he makes every single decision about every single facet of that church's existence. You didn't see that, did you? No. Is that a good way to govern the flock? No. Does it work for some? Maybe. But does it 
fail catastrophically for other people and profane the name of God? Yes. And it makes really good headlines when it does. It doesn't say that in here. He says when you appoint elders, when you appoint deacons, he doesn't say when you hire on with a, with a six-digit salary someone who has gone to Asbury Theological Seminary and they make all the decisions. That's not bad to go to seminary. I don't like it when people say cemetery. I actually, I, I, seminary is actually perhaps a good thing. It teaches you how to teach other people. It teaches you how to research. Now, there are some bad things you can learn in seminary. Don't get me wrong. They can be counter to the word of God, but every seminary you know, isn't the same and it's not created equal. But education isn't bad. But he doesn't say part of the qualifications isn't that you have a degree in theology to teach the word of God. It's just that you meet all these qualifications right here. But under that is the reason why is this equips the assembly to be able to make situational or doctrinal decisions. Situational or doctrinal decisions. You know, a lot of people will um, ask me if so-and-so can come speak here. And I'm all about that. Like, I love having guest speakers come. But if I don't know so-and-so... Um, then we have to look into them. And you guys agree with me that's a good idea? Yeah. Good. Okay. I'm just glad. <laughs> I don't want to just bring anybody off the street in here to, and who has a good website and has sold a couple books to start speaking to everyone what they claim to be truth. Nor do I want to be the sole person in charge of making that decision of whether or not they come here. Uh, the elders of this congregation will get together and they will look up the website of this person. They will watch... Um, Videos. They will read books, articles. They will dig up a little bit of research on this person. And then we as a group of elders will say, what do you think? Should they come? Should they speak here? How will they benefit our congregation if they do? Okay, cool. And then we give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And that's kind of the process. Now, that's a lengthy process, and people don't like that sometimes. People want Gabe Rutledge solo to make a decision on the fly. But that's no bueno. That's not, that's not good. That's not healthy for a congregation. It takes time, but that, that's okay. We're not in a rush, right? We can, we can research these people and we can, we can do a little bit of homework. But these other kind of doctrinal decisions, like there's some things in the Bible that are not as black and white as we like. And we need elders to say, okay, we're going to go with this decision here. And then that decision of how we move forward with that according to the, the, the Bible, within the parameters of the Bible... Eventually, that decision falls on you and I. Or, uh, the decision falls on the elders of the congregations for making that decision. And that's the beauty of having elders, is that they bear the blame either for the good or for the bad in the decision that they made. 1B I got here. This model prevents an entire organization's direction and existence from being placed on the shoulders of one head honcho. Bad things happen when that is structured that way. And this allows the local assembly the autonomy to bring clarity to the area of, of God's word that are not as black and white. And this has happened time and time again here at our congregation where we as elders have to make a decision. We have to go with it. We research it, we pray about it, and we go with it. This model that Paul lays out here, what we could call the, the uh, elder-led model, it further prevents elders from showing partiality. And their decisions when determining an outcome. So if you have two people that are fighting in the congregation and one gives $10,000 a year and one gives $10 a year, the elders, in theory, if they follow this model, should not know who gives what. 
the elder should express complete impartiality in that decision. So for me, for instance, and for the other elders of this congregation, we have no idea what you folks give. And we keep it that way. I like it that way. I don't get into that at all. I don't touch money. I don't know money. I don't handle money. And because of that, I'm above reproach. And I don't have to show any partiality. There's no temptation to show partiality for that. With the sustained lifespan of local assembly, the local assembly can be the hub of all major life events and other physical and spiritual needs. That's the goal, is that we create in a community, an ecclesia, that lasts for generations and generations so that everyone has a safe place to come and learn and worship and experience life events together. Like we just married Caleb and Annie Saturday, last Saturday. They're both here, so congratulate them if you haven't yet. But... Without a local assembly or births of children or burials and, and funerals, we wouldn't be able to do those sorts of things without a local assembly. And you can't have a healthy local assembly without governance in that local assembly. I've had men call me and they, they have a home fellowship, let's say. And in that home fellowship, there is no governance. It's kind of just a free for all. And they call me from time to time really frustrated with the people that hijack that Bible study or that home fellowship. Men will come in and they will weasel their way in and they'll blow everyone's minds with like some knowledge that they picked up usually from the internet. That's usually partially untrue anyways. And then they'll have everybody captive. And the man who is hosting the home fellowship is like, guys, what are we doing? No, no, no. But it was always this like anarchy, like, okay, everyone, there is no leadership here. Because leaders are bad. Leaders hurt people. Guys, where there are no leaders, there are leaders. There is no such thing as two human beings without a leader. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. It's just a matter of having the right leaders. My next lesson. At the forefront of Paul's motivation in writing to Timothy is the long-term health of the assembly in Ephesus. And the prevention or the decay and the perversion of the truth of the gospel. That's at the forefront of Paul's mind is preserve the truth, the truth of the gospel, what has been revealed to us. And the last lesson I took from 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that spiritual or religious anarchy is rampant in the body of Messiah. This is destructive to one's ability to gather in worship and people's hearing and understanding of truth when we need clear truth presented more than ever right now. Guys, there is a wave of artificial intelligence that's coming into the world right now that will make us wonder what is true and untrue more than anything else. There is, have you ever sat down and had a conversation with your children about why Islam is not true and why your faith is? Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world right now. It's a tidal wave that will sweep over the West and be one of the major factors that causes the collapse of Western civilization. I believe. And I believe on our soil, we will begin to see mass conversions to Islam. People looking for truth. People looking for an identity with something that is bigger than themselves. But have those kinds of conversations. Now, I've been in two different congregations where they were not structured like this. I've been a part and attended these congregations as just an attendee. Both of them were not structured like this. Both had one head honcho. 
both of the head honchos had a faith crisis and abandoned their faith altogether in Messiah, disbanded the congregation literally overnight, and just went berserk and no, left everyone wondering what just happened. Two times that has happened to me in my life, in the span of just 15 years even. When we structure our congregation like this, like a biblical way, if Gabe Rutledge goes berserk and has a faith crisis, the other elders of the congregation go, oh, we'll pray for him. Okay, next. Right? Right? But the, the show goes on. I hate to call it a show, but the worship goes on. The congregation goes on. And it's resting on, if it's a cult of personality, you're setting yourself up for failure. Those are all the lessons I learned. And um, I want to hear the lessons that you learned, but we're out of time and everybody's looking really hungry. So I'll be sitting up here if you have a question or comment. I want to take this time, however, to announce some of you know that Bobby Coleman stepped down as a deacon um, before Sukkot. And as soon as he did that, um, Adrian and myself were the remaining two, de- uh, uh, I'm sorry, as an elder, the remaining two elders of the congregation. And we immediately began searching and praying for a replacement elder because we feel like having a minimum of three elders is really important for the health of the congregation. So, of course, we go to this chapter here and we read through all these things and we pray about who in our congregation fits these qualifications, is able to teach has a good reputation, is not greedy, is above reproach, a husband and one wife, all those lists. And we both felt, Adrian and I both felt, a deep, deep peace that Bob Sanders was the best, most qualified person to fill that role that that Bobby Coleman had. And so um, in two weeks from today, we're going to be conducting an ordination service for Bob Sanders. And and you guys will get to be a part of that. We're going to have Bob come up and we're going to lay hands as elders on Bob gently. Lay hands. And... uh, no. Yeah, we, you know, we were on the fence about Bob Sanders and then we were deciding on a place to go up to breakfast this week on uh, yesterday morning and Bob texts in the group and he said Waffle House and he's like, okay, yep, now we're definitely, he's definitely the one. Yeah. So Adrian and I love Waffle House. So when Bob said that, we were like, yes. So yeah, but. We've been praying for a new Yeah, thank you for praying for wisdom. Well, thank you. Thank you for praying for wisdom on that. Yeah. Amen. Well, I believe your prayers have been answered. So. And two weeks from today, we'll, we'll ordain him as a new, new elder. So uh, in the meantime, pray for him. When you, when you step out as an elder and a leader in the congregation, in the body of Messiah, as husband and wife, you have the target on your back grows from this big to like this big. So I'm in all seriousness, pray for them and, and uh, pray for wisdom and peace and, and security for them, uh, Bob and Brenda. Well, guys, uh, we're going to close out with Kiddush. Do we have the elements for Kiddush? Do we have bread and juice? And then, um, Michael, do you want to do the Aaronic benediction? Is he up there? I'm going to get ready for that. And don't forget, at 5 p.m. today, we're going to have worship and prayer right here. Oh, cool. Your homework is to read First Timothy chapter 4.